you started a business before MicroAcquire. What made you decide to get back into the game and start another company? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, you know, startups are addicting. <laughs> uh, entrepreneurship is addicting. Um, you mind if I back up and just kind of, uh, maybe I'll just kind of share my, my quick five minute background story. That's yeah, go all. for it. That's great. Um, uh, like a teaser, you know, now everyone's hooked because they got to wait. Yeah. And then I'd love to just any questions about just like where you're at with your business. Um, I'm, you know, I, I love entrepreneurs, startups helping. Um, I don't have all the answers, but I have words that might help. So, um, but yeah, my name is Angie Gazdecki. Um, uh, currently founder of MicroQuire startup acquisition marketplace. Been an entrepreneur kind of my whole life. Um, grew up on you know selling stuff on eBay, all the cliche stuff. When everyone was collecting collecting them all, I was selling Pokemon cards. Um, uh, sold yo-yos um uh i used to do this thing in college where i actually entered college uh knowing i just could never survive a job and so i spent every summer creating a new business and my thesis there was you know if you create 12 startups just like angel investing if you invest in 12 different startups your chances of one of them succeeding increases and you get so i kind of took like a venture uh or angel investor uh approach to building startups so i started like a website to help real estate or college uh, apartments find students didn't work i started uh what else did i start uh, the most the most notable was probably a, a job board, and I'm not technical, so I basically just bought a script that allowed me to just kind of configure the design and stuff, and it helped businesses find mobile developers back in uh, 2009, 2010, right when the iPhone like first came out. Like I remember like those moments, which was pretty cool. Um, and what, what was interesting about that business, and this might give some others ideas, um, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, you want to find the unique insight into um, a business that is obvious to you, but not obvious to others that will become obvious over time. And I'll explain kind of how that happened um, with me, where I had this job board and I saw all these businesses putting in requests for mobile applications being developed for mostly high-end restaurants like hotels at the time it was like 2010 so it's like brand new no one knew how to build an iphone app no one knew what features were useful and so i got a first-hand look at you know what a good iphone app is and people were paying like 50k to like 200k to develop these and i'd take a small cut and then i just thought and what I started seeing was a pattern. So I started seeing a pattern of a certain type of app request. And so I thought, oh, well, what if I just make a template? There's these do-yourself website builders. What if there was a do-yourself mobile app builder? Um, so that led me to, I sold the job board um, for, I think it was like 30, 50, I wish I remembered the number, but it felt like a trillion dollars in college. So I was, I was like dead broke. 
um it was like it was like the, the most meaningful money i've ever made and uh, like you know um uh use that to start a, a company called business app spelled p-a-z-n-e-s-s-apps.com um and, and it's still live today uh do yourself a lab builder um the first version of it was terrible and the idea was really modest it was just if I can just get 50 people to sign up for $50 a month, I don't have to get a job and I can keep building startups until one of them takes off. And then business apps ended up taking off um, while I was in college. Um, so that, that's what really kind of started my entrepreneurial journey. And um, I ended up growing that company to over $10 million in annual recurring revenue, bootstrapped the business. Um and then after that, I started a crypto company for some reason, exited that to a company called BNK to the future. Um, and then, yeah, now I'm just trying to help other entrepreneurs kind of see a more practical and realistic path to entrepreneurship um, by, you know, not swinging for the fences, not going after that, you know, unicorn uh valuation or whatever and just building something that makes you happy and pays your bills and um is profitable and i mean that in my mind is is, is and it, it, it's more attainable and it's more statistically probable um so that's that's just kind of my uh my slick i guess you could say um and aside from that i like skateboarding surfing um i grew up in southern california can i could i could switch i could switch flip man all right, even better. I, what oh, feels oh, 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 better? Well, first, what? so a new company, you get your first sale for a new company, or first time you sell a company. Sell so, one time. So, what feels better? Like, where's which is the bigger dopamine hit? You started a new company, you get that first customer to sign up, or like the company has reached the end of its road and you sell it, like the first time you, like that fifty thousand dollar moment in college. Uh, that's a great question um i'm gonna go with the dopamine hit when you get that first customer even with microquire because i didn't think microquire was gonna work i have a journal i keep a journal and i recommend um all of you um not like a weird journal like hey diary i'm sad today you know just like or, or sometimes that can be healthy but my journals are just like uh what's going well in the business what's not going well in the business um where i think i'll be in 30 days and what i'm grateful for and that's kind of like personal stuff and just good perspective um and then what i've always found most helpful about doing that is is two things number one you get to look back on your journey and see all this cool stuff and it like brings you back like oh i remember that moment like four years ago i use a company uh thing called penzu um and it like i'll just get an email like four days ago you wrote like you built this and i'm like oh that was awesome and it just kind of is a nice reminder of my day um but more importantly you know every startup goes through problems like every there's not one startup um or entrepreneur that is just kind of just just shot you know, nothing but net like Michael Jordan, like everybody has bumps and down and then the highs are highs and the lows are so low. 
And uh, what I found in my journal was when I'd write about what I was concerned about in the business, I'd go and update it the next month and I'd reflect on what I was concerned about 30 days ago. And I'd be like, oh, oh yeah, that's fixed. Okay. And so I'm a big believer that, you know, sometimes success with startups is just the last man standing. So just having that perspective of just, you know, when you view problems as opportunities to improve and that you'll get through it, um, it reduces your stress levels. It makes the journey more enjoyable. Um, and that little difference, um, you know, can be uh, the difference between you continuing forward or, or, or quitting. Um, so just having that perspective of like, we'll figure this out, you know, not a big deal. And then once you fix it, something else breaks and then you fix it. It's just part of building a startup. Um, but to answer your question again, Anthony, yeah, first customer is is pretty uh, like a moment of like, oh my gosh. Um, I'd say probably not like customer like 10 or like when you start to get to like, like it, it's moving up and it's like, you know, product market fit starting to feel real there. It's hard to describe that feeling, but um, uh, selling a company definitely has a different, um, uh, I guess, sort of, you know, feeling because, you know, it's like the end of a journey, you know, the movie ends. So in a way, you know, you're celebrating, but at the same time, you're like, man, that was a lot of fun. Um, what am I going to do next? And so, um, I always recommend anytime I hear an entrepreneur, um, you know, going through an exit or, uh, planning an exit, I usually recommend, um, either planning a trip to go plan what they're going to do next. Like take time off, like chill out. Cause one of the biggest mistakes I've seen amongst friends that have sold companies for ridiculous amounts of money is they, you kind of get this sort of like. I can do anything feeling now and you swing at something that maybe isn't in your wheelhouse and it um, doesn't work out, um, you know, as well as your first startup. So putting a lot of thought into that, um, I highly recommend. And my best advice there is um, like with MicroQuart, uh, my journey was um, business apps we sold to um, mostly agencies and uh, web development companies. So we had this mobile app builder. This might be a, an idea for some people, but um, we sold to small businesses. So I think restaurants or like hair salons or uh, lawyers, all sorts of small businesses. But our go-to-market model was we'd partner with uh, web design agencies that had pre-existing relationships with small businesses. So white label means we just removed all of our branding then we'd sell the software to other companies. We wouldn't like just give them the code. We would like put their logo on it. We'd manage it. And then it allowed us to, that's what allowed us to bootstrap the company because we essentially, every partner was uh, essentially a, a salesperson with, you know, a hundred relationships with small businesses. They make websites for manage their social media accounts or whatever. Um, I really enjoyed that business. And then I moved into um, a company called Allcoin, uh, where very, very technical, not very good founder market fit. Um, still, still a good outcome. But after that, um, you know, when it came to thinking about my next startup, 
because again, startups are addicting. Like, <laughs> and what else am I gonna do? I'm I'm 33. I got I got a, I I got a few few gallons of gas left in the tank. Um, you know, the first thing I wrote down was um, you know, the customer. Um, because any startup you start, uh, you're gonna be talking to the customers a lot. And an analogy I use all the time is. You know, if if you hate dentists and you make a CRM for dentists, you're probably it's gonna be tough because you're gonna be probably competing against someone who loves dentists for some reason. Um, and you know, you want to have that love for the customer because you'll talk to them more, you'll build the product, you'll understand the customer more. Um, another um, hack, not a hack, but just something I recommend is. You know, when you're able to really like walk in your customer's shoes, like let's say you, you um, want to build a product for creators, um, you know, be a creator first, like live that life, use the tools. And that also, you know, can merge into like kind of your story on why you launched the company. Um, so just some random rants and thoughts. So I hope that was helpful. Anthony, I stretched your question out pretty far. I hope that, I hope that was okay. Well, that's all right. We got a lot of questions in the chat now coming in. Um, we'll just kind of go through them in order, I guess. Uh, so Blake was curious, why did those first companies fail? Like your student living matching company, what was the nail in the coffin? Um, there's no, no real need. And I didn't really start them with like huge ambitions. It was more just to learn. Like I just wanted to know how to use photoshop i wanted to know how to use dreamweaver um no one uses dreamweaver anymore um and i just wasn't very passionate about i just probably probably no product market fit i was in a college town and the idea was to help people who owned apartments or houses for students get students to you know rent their apartments but they didn't need help so they were like, well, why do I need you? So I think just not really solving a problem that was painful enough for um, apartment owners was probably the reason. Um, Chris says he's seen a lot of startup deals go through, but not a ton of agencies. Um, do you have any insights on what are the multiples an agency can expect versus like a SaaS? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, startup. I mean, startups in general. You know, it's kind of like it's like asking the price of a car. Sometimes, you know, like you can have a SaaS with you know the same revenue, same growth rate, um, but there's things like age. There's things like who are your customers? You have a three-year contract with micro Microsoft. Is it? an enterprise play, um, how profitable is it? Um, SaaS always commands the highest multiples because the revenue is recurring. So it's a very predictable business and arguably a, a safer acquisition than, say, an agency. The agencies that we see sell typically are aqua hires. So they're acquiring just a big development team um, rather than the services that they provide. Um, but we do see a good amount of agencies sell, but not nearly as much as, as SaaS. There's just a, a larger appetite from buyers for, for SaaS and um, e-commerce companies. And then in terms of multiples, 
Um, we haven't seen, we're, we're just about to release our second um, valuations report that just goes through all the data of all the acquisitions, the hundreds of acquisitions that we've seen on microacquire. And we haven't really seen too much change, if anything. Um, nothing jarring. Um, but rule of thumb, I always say, you know, a good valuation for a SaaS startup is anywhere between, you know, six to 10 times profit, depending on how fast you're growing and a number of other factors. Um, and then with agencies, we typically see that down at like one to two, maybe three. Um, and that's just because of the nature of the revenue. You know, when you buy the business, uh, if there's no recurring revenue component, you know, you're just really buying the brand and, you know, you need to ensure those customers are going to keep coming back to support the business. So if you do have an agency, I'd recommend um, agencies are, this is what I would do. I would, um, you know, find a way to get some sort of recurring revenue in the business. And that could be through, you know, manage social media stuff, or I run your, like my favorite agents, the favorite agency I've seen sell was so simple. All it did was manage Facebook ads. So it was very, very, very specific. And it had a component of recurring revenue for managing your Facebook ads, like, hey, $600 a month, and then a percentage of your ad spend. I thought that was just a very simple model. And that sold at, I think, like a 5x profit multiple, if I'm not wrong. Um, but yeah, long story short, SaaS is, is, is always going to command uh, higher multiples. Yeah, 5x sounds more in line with like a SaaS company. Is it this? And it sounds like that's was like a productized service more than. Like a yeah, that would be that would be like an outlier. It was a great business. It was at scale, um, and they had built in um, a recurring revenue component, um, mm -hmm. which was, and then it sold to um, their customer base was mostly uh, small businesses. So it sold to a strategic that also mostly sold to small businesses. No, we've got a question uh, from Anonymous, which I didn't even know you could register anonymously to hop in. <laughs> they say, what was your audience <laughs> like when you started off uh, with MicroAcquire? They're referring to like your social media presence at that time. Is this Anonymous, the hacker group? I assume. Yeah, one assumes. Well, uh, well I just want to say I love you and uh, please don't, don't <laughs> hack MicroAcquire. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, uh, if I recall, I wasn't very active on, on social. Um, I just didn't really get it. Um, and then when I, when I started MicroQuire, you know, marketplaces, I've seen probably 20 clones of my, there's like indie acquire, there's early acquire, there's tiny acquisitions, there's bits for digits. There's like, uh, I saw there's foundry, there's, literally so many clones for microquire but my point there is um uh, when you build a marketplace um the the moat and the defensibility isn't in the tech um it's in the the network effects um so i i felt it was a brand and storytelling play and so i felt you know telling that story and then looking at the market you know acquisitions was such a mystery to so many people you know very few articles were written on like due diligence or what's a letter of intent or the legal steps that you go through. 
um, how to best position your startup to uh, negotiate with buyers, common deal structures. No one was talking about that stuff. And so, um, you know, really kind of bringing out um, kind of just unveiling like the investment banker sort of like, hey, this isn't anything too special. Um, we'd love to share this with all entrepreneurs. Um, I think that um, really helped. And then just taking that to um, social on Twitter and, and LinkedIn um, uh, was really effective because no one had, had, had done it before. Um, and how I grow my Twitter account or whatever, if anyone's wondering, um, advice there, um, just be yourself and have fun with it. Um, like social media platforms can be like unhealthy and addicting if like you just, just try too hard. Just be yourself, have fun with it. Um, and, you know, really try to find, you know, uh, like uh, uh, an angle that other people aren't taking um, within your industry. And that's worked for me. I mean, I don't know why people follow me, to be honest. Uh, Nick has a question that's really related. So we'll skip to that and then go back to the others. He asks um, how much money you had when you started MicroAcquire. Uh, and did you raise any capital yourself? How much money personally? Can't tell you that. Um, for MicroAcquire, we raised, uh, I believe, like $13 million at this point. So we're far from bootstrap. And we got yeah. about a 1% chance of success. So please, please pray for me. What, uh, when you first started off, did you start it off planning to raise money or did you start off with the planning to be bootstrapped? Um, so I was actually the first uh, uh, angel investor. Um, there, was, there was VC circling and we were going to do like a small 200K seed round. And I was just like, nah, and I just wired 200K into, I have the tweet somewhere if you look it up. Um, so I wired 200K into, um, so I spent about a, probably a million my, of my own money building MicroQuire. So no, the plan wasn't to um, raise capital, um, but I just got the right people that believed in the business. And I felt, you know, I had already reached my financial goals um, I always say bootstrap if you want to create wealth and then raise venture capital if you want to disrupt or change the market because your odds of seeing any sort of financial outcome are dramatically lower once you raise venture capital. It's a totally different game. And it comes with a lot of bullshit too. Um, but I felt, you know, the opportunity to help potentially thousands or even millions of entrepreneurs exit their business and have a maybe similar outcome like I did at Business Apps um, was appealing to me. So, and then when we factor in just how big of a, uh, you know, the vision for microquire, you know, making due diligence easier, data-driven valuations, um, you know, automated matchmaking for buyers, um, you know, uh, tools that help buyers assess the financial health of your business, just making it easier and streamlining the whole acquisition process. Um, you know, that, that could, I wanted to accelerate that. So that was the reason for initially raising capital. And then I raised from, um, some amazing people at the beginning. Um, 
but no, the I never had any plans to raise capital. I think I, I bootstrapped to like seven hundred k, and then and then I raised after that, just because the market opportunity appeared so large and. Um, uh, again, the opportunity to just help entrepreneurs really appealed to me. How do you judge when it makes like if you're on the bootstrapper path and you've reached you know <laughs> half a million dollars in AR or whatever? Uh, how do you decide like okay, actually like to truly account, capture this market, it makes sense for me to raise. Um, I would say never raise ever. Don't just don't do it. Um, just don't. I mean, what's the point? I mean, like unless you need like a private jet or something like that. Um, you know, I think, I guess, you know, I always tell entrepreneurs, like really think about what you want to get out of a startup. And I think a lot of, a lot of founders raise money, not understanding that. Like if you just want like one, two, three, four, five million bucks, like if you don't live like where I live in San Mateo, California, I only live here because I married this uh, beautiful Italian lady with an Italian mafia family. So I have to live in the most expensive area. Um, but if you're in like a different state, you can buy a home cash. You can put some, buy some boring index funds and sell it when you're 70 and you're set. Like, so if that's what you're after, bootstrapping will get you to that goal quicker. And, and an analogy I'll use is when you're at 500,000, um, in your current revenue with the bootstrap startup, you're kind of at like the blackjack table with chips and you can cash them in. You can cash those chips in, but as soon as you bring on other investors, you got to go get a lot more chips, a lot more chips before you can. And then sometimes if you don't have leverage, um, you can get terms where, you know, you can't sell a business without like three people's approval. You can't do all this stuff. So, you know, I'd say, you know, if anything, I always recommend, and I've said this a few times, but my recommended path for entrepreneurs is, you know, build a, you know, service business first. Mine was a job board, bootstrap a business and exit that just so you're financially secure and then swing for the fences and do whatever you want because the pressure is, is really small. Like microquire doesn't reach its full potential. You know, if I waste a decade on it, I mean, I had a good time and helped some people. Um, so I, it really comes down to like, but if you're dead set on, you know, your ambition is high and like you, you really feel like this is, you know, something you can really build into something meaningful and that's what you want to do, um, go for it. But um, another thing I'd add is, you know, I meet founders all the time who absolutely hate their jobs because things change dramatically when you go from 500K to, managing a leadership team and then having mid mid-level management and then you're just managing all day you know you're not really building as much um so now your whole job is recruiting and you know really setting the vision and kind of doing less but also doing more at the same time what i mean by that is you're you're setting the direction you're setting you're aligning the team and you're creating the culture and so your job completely changes and I think a lot of entrepreneurs that raise capital don't understand that in terms of how much your job is going to change day to day by hiring people, bringing more people into the business. Um, and that may not be what you like to do. You may be a builder and you just love building, having a small team. Um, but if you're the type of person that, you know, wants to build like a mega thing, um, 
yeah, venture definitely is right for you. To take it to take it back more towards the beginning, we've got a question from uh, Issa Patel. Uh, she asks, um, "How do you stay motivated when you're struggling to get sales on your SaaS?" Um, that's a good question. Um, when I get when I get stressed out or demotivated, I usually just work harder. I know that sounds counterproductive, um, but I. It, it just it's just soothing just moving the ball even in even an inch foot yard whatever any sort of progress any sort of oxygen any sort of momentum i could put in the business um testing a new outreach strategy um you know i you know just cold emailing a ceo at a big company um there's a number of different things i could i could go along down the list but i mean Everyone, but understanding like every entrepreneur goes through that, like figuring out your go to mo- go to market model, figuring out like what sticks. Like, there are some dark times, like at business apps, where it was like just me in a in a small office like this, um, <laughs> where basically I was just cold calling businesses, and I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna make this work. And then I started talking to customers. And that's where I got the idea for white labeling our software. And so, you know, if you're struggling with sales, maybe go back to your existing customers and figure out what they really love about your product and adjust things like your positioning, or maybe you go narrow on, you know, the customer that you're targeting, figure out who's getting the most value out of your product and then just hyper, hyper, hyper focus there. I think one of the biggest mistakes a lot of entrepreneurs make is they kind of try to speak to everybody. When you do that, you end up speaking to nobody. You mean like talking to people that aren't your customers or like asking the wrong people for advice? Uh, both. Um, like one mistake I think I made at business apps where it, it possibly could have been a bigger business. Like um, like we sold to every type of small business, so schools included. Um, but then there was point solutions where they sold like the best app for schools. And so when we'd have head-to-heads and bake-offs, you know, there was just functionality that they had thought through specifically for that business. Um, Chow now is probably a good example there. Um, they make mobile apps for uh, restaurants and we had a, we were ahead of them at one point, but we again went broad. Um, so I recommend going really narrow on um, your ICP, which is um, your ideal client customer profile. Um, and then to your second point, um, what I mean by speaking to everybody, you know, speaking to nobody is um, along the lines of just, if you're kind of like, hey, my product is for everybody, like it's confusing for people. So this is a big thing that I see at, at MicroQuire in terms of mistakes um, service make is it's not clear who the product's for. It's not clear what problem they're solving. So if you get those MicroQuire newsletters, we have to like kind of dissect what the thing, what the startup does sometimes. Or like, okay, this is for, you know, uh, I'll use the dentist, the CRM for dentist. And then the headline on the website is like jargon, 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 you know. So I would say um, getting really narrow on um, your customers is is always a, a winning strategy. All right, this will be the last question, then we're switching over to demos. Um, so again, from Anonymous, have you 
they're asking specifically financial. I think I'm going to broaden that a bit. Do you feel like you've made any specific big mistakes with micro acquire so far? Um, how did you fix them? Um, we had some, some technical debt early. Um, but you know, that just part of building a startup, nothing, nothing glaring comes to mind. Um, I'm trying to think of something good, like a mistake I made. Um, no, I mean, we haven't had a single person leave the company. Um, we haven't had any scams on the business. Um, we haven't had any hacks. We haven't had any server downtime, which is actually impressive. Um, maybe, maybe pricing. I think maybe I priced the product too low. Um, Easy to fix. Uh, yeah. Raise the prices. We're already fixing it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I recommend everybody do that. Uh, nothing, nothing glaring, but um, that day will come and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it.